0: Hey there and welcome. I'm Anna Beketov from Blackstock Consulting and this episode of Propcast will be focused on the high street and its regeneration, an extremely hot topic in the property industry and one of the areas that has taken a particular bashing as a result of the pandemic. Now this should be a really interesting discussion as we are joined by three individuals who are working on high street regeneration in very different capacities. Firstly we have Ibrahim Ibrahim who joins us from Portland Design, a leading place strategy and retail design business focused on future readiness. Ibrahim is also a board member of the UK's government High Street Task Force. Alex McCulloch is a director at CACI and heads up Proposition and Innovation. Working in partnership with the largest landlords and developers in Europe, advising on investment, asset management and strategy, Alex's work uses data and technology to understand the consumer, where they go, what they do, how they shop, what they want and crucially, why they make the decisions that they do. Finally, as Head of Assets at Argent, Anthea Harris directs the overall management and curation of King's Cross, London's 67-acre creative quarter, widely recognised as the most successful urban redevelopment in a generation and one of Europe's best-known multi-use destinations. Now, the question of whether the high street is dead and what it needs to revive it has been endlessly discussed within the property industry, especially as less and less people frequent shops in lieu of e-commerce and more and more retailers close. 8,739 shops have closed since the start of the year, according to the local data company, and shops are currently closing at an alarming rate of 50 a day. Yet the first half of 2020 saw 11,120 shops closed, which suggests that COVID has merely accelerated an existing trend. Now, the statistics are pointed to the fact that the majority of the shops that have closed are chains and, of course, department stores, and not so much smaller independent retailers, highlighting a shift towards staying local and supporting smaller businesses. Are we then headed towards a more curated boutique high street? And in terms of online shopping, if people can buy everything they need online, what need do they have to enter a bricks and mortar store? Now, rather than talking about how underperforming high streets can simply be converted into housing offices, I want to talk about keeping high streets alive, something Ibrahim, you are particularly passionate about. So can you kick us off by talking about some of the ways in which we can establish a sense of place on the high street and encouraging that much needed footfall?
1: Yes, thank you, Anna. Well, first of all, I would say that the high streets and those responsible for them need to kick the addiction of shopping. I think secondly, we need to think about changing the rhythm, changing the rhythm of footfall, changing the rhythm from a shopping rhythm to a community rhythm. And we've got to absolutely think about how we can regenerate our high streets to become the galvanizer of community again. And I don't just mean community in terms of local demographic community, that is one description of community, but also we're going to think about communities that are centred around brands. So how do we attract brands that are community-driven, that are purpose-driven, not transactional-driven, because many of those brands would have transactional fulfilment models online. So what is their physical experience, and therefore how does that contribute to creating a sense of community, and the galvanising of community.
0: And I think a place that we can agree has done this particularly successfully in terms of regeneration is King's Cross, which I think you will agree has a perfect mix of assets, so retail, leisure, brands among solid dining and entertainment offerings. Anthea, can you talk us through the reasons why the regeneration has been such a success and what you think other places can learn from this?
2: There's been many reasons for King's Cross's success. Firstly, it's transport links. Um, It sits on two of the busiest stations. But fundamentally, it's based on the principles for a human city, and that is around community. As Ibrahim has, has pointed out, bringing people to a place where they can dwell, they can shop, they can eat, they can work, they can live. And being able to house that in one place is one of the main reasons for King's Cross's success. I think in the context of this discussion as well, the public realm is of critical importance in the regeneration of the high streets post-pandemic particularly. You can create great spaces within buildings themselves, but if the environment around them is not safe, secure, clean, accessible and open to all, then there is immediately a barrier for people to actually be able to enter those shops. So we are very focused on creating a destination that is accessible, that is diverse, that's open and inclusive. That then brings people to it to dwell. The conversion then into retail and restaurants is the ability for us as a landlord to work in partnership with brands, both large brands, multinational brands, but also smaller independents to create the right spaces for them. And over the last 18 months, it's been incumbent on us to really try and support those businesses through what have been incredibly difficult headwinds for the retail sector as a whole. So your your question really is, is multifaceted in that we have to create great spaces. And actually, I wanted to just talk about the use class order and the ability now for brands themselves to be able to look at creating experiences within their retail stores now that the e-class use has been brought in but also to create great public realm and if we can do that both in public spaces on the traditional high streets as well as the bigger estates that you see in London then we're going to be able to help support brands reinvent themselves and themselves, regenerate mm. themselves post-pandemic.
0: And obviously, you know, King's Cross is a particular example because Argent effectively stewards in a sort of landlord-type yes. role. And actually, it seems that landlord-owned areas are performing better than those in retail locations that sort of present a random mix of offerings. So how do you think
2: that Argent effectively can act differently? Well, we do take a very long-term view. So yes, we have just been through one of the most economically challenging Times of of this generation actually, and new businesses opening in London, but we do take a long term view. And the important aspect there is that we're working in partnership with those brands. So we select brands to come to King's Cross that are going to have a point of difference, that can offer experience in store, uh, are focused on craftsmanship and unique products that they sell, and also the importance of customer service. You can't get customer service one-on-one through Amazon or other. But you can, if you if you engage with a brand in a physical store, have a fantastic experience. And I think that's going to become increasingly important as people come out of the pandemic, as they are now, with a pent-up demand to actually engage again in lifestyle activities. And the retail stores, appreciating it's been very difficult for many, many of them, it is a case of survival of the fitters and those that can balance that online e-commerce with creating something different within their stores. And that's what we want to see at King's Cross. And that's what we're supporting our operators to be able to do.
0: Yeah. And of course, sort of technology and and online is often seen as the enemy of physical retail, but is undeniably a very useful tool when it comes to understanding consumer behaviours and demand. So Alex, can you tell us a bit more about how CACI does this?
3: Uh, Yeah, definitely. So I think there's a few different ways in which you can come at this. I think ultimately what we're trying to do is understand what motivates people and why they go to a place and what they love about that place or not. And if not, then what can that place do better? Now, if you went back maybe, let's say, three or four years ago, the primary way of doing that would basically be talking to people. Now, you can dress that up in various forms. It can be through an online you know, sort of survey. It can be through exit surveys, intercept surveys, whatever. But it, effectively, it's talking to people. And that that still has a huge role to play. But what we've seen in the last... I'd say probably three years, is a significant acceleration of other data sets. Data sets which can retain the individual's anonymity, so they're all fully GDPR compliant, there's no PII in them, but allow us to understand effectively how people engage and move through space and how that changes over time. And using those data sets, one of the things we've been able to do throughout that whole pandemic period is understand how people shifted their behaviours and changed their behaviours. And you know, you touched on the acceleration points before. I think you know, we sort of said quite early on that we were going to estimate that people are going to jump forward five years in the first two weeks of 2020 of lockdown. And what we meant by that was that people immediately start transacting online. So absolutely, we've seen a step change in where people spend their money. So we work with transactional spend data. So effectively looking at where transactions are taking place on bank cards, and we can sort of see that everywhere. And one of the things we observed is if on everything you buy which is effectively non-grocery, so anything you'd buy from a high street which is non-food, it's about 30% of transactions. When we went into lockdown that jumped to about 85% and surprisingly there was very few places you could shop apart from supermarkets and so on. But as we've come back out and everything is reopened, it's sort of settled back down at about 40%. So in the space of 18 months we've seen a 10 percentage point shift in where transactions are taking place from physical retail into online retail. So that absolutely is one of the big driving trends you'll see behind a lot of those store closures you referenced at the beginning, as well as a few other things which we'll come on to. So we can see that step change. But what we also saw using data which comes from mobile devices, so if you have GPS on your phone we can understand sort of general movement and so on. What we saw from that was again people becoming increasingly local and not traveling. So if you take March 8th 2020 as a benchmark. In the space of, I think it was nine days, we dropped to a level of movement by which I'm sort of saying how far and how much often you leave your immediate neighbourhood. We went from, if in an index of 100, down to 30. So we, we went down to a third of what we were doing before. Now, bearing in mind, even at that point, there's still a whole cohort of people who have to travel. They are care workers, they're working in, you know, uh, driving vans are the key workers the essential workers that still have to travel around but we went from 100 to 30 as a nation and we didn't get back to that March 8th point until May 2021 so we sort of bumped up and down as we went through in and out of various lockdowns and so on but what we were able to see is understand how people were moving and you start then seeing some real differences by asset type and asset class so local high streets actually rebounded first and foremost because we were working from home and by we, I mean most of the people in this room who have desk-based jobs and could work from home. And it's worth always remembering that about half the population can't do that and have carried on exactly as they always were because they don't have desk <coughs> jobs. But for those that did, we worked from home. And as a result, we engaged more with our local communities and our local high streets. And that's seen a real shift in how people have carried on now that we've come out right, of it. Yeah. And so one of the big trends we've seen alongside the online one is actually this growth of localism and we sort of characterise this as if pre-pandemic, it was all about personal wellness and personal well-being, and that was sort of a me culture. We've moved very much to a we culture, which is very much around people caring about their community. You know, sort of Clap for Carers was the start of that, but actually people now care about where they live, and they engage a lot more with that space. And places, you know, you touched on earlier, um, Anthony, when you have that public realm, I think the key thing, and to your community point as well, Ibrahim, is that places have to stand for something. They've got to mean something to consumers. And by consumers, I mean shoppers, but also workers, also people who live there, people who, you know, people who are engaging with that, they need to mean something. And public realm and a blended mix is crucial to creating that sense of place. And that's, I think, you know, we've, if someone says King's Cross, most Londoners will have an instant image of what that stands for. And that's what success looks like, I think, as we move out of this.
0: So, do you think people are now preferring to use their local high streets to use their local businesses instead of what they might have done before, which is go into the West End and go shopping there? So,
3: yeah. So, I mean, well, I think I think we need to be we need to be a little bit careful on how we frame that because I think you know, if the West End is a bit of a unique beast in that um, they've lost a the shadow of tourism, so the numbers are going to be down in the West End because of that. So, sort of put that to one side a bit. I think we do need to be careful on how we frame it. I think. Most people, when we sort of come out of this, are going to end up working in the office probably about three days a week and working from home two days a week. What that means is that on the two days you're working from home, and I'm holding my hands up, I do this myself, you'll go to your local high street at lunch to get out, you'll buy some food from the local shops, local grocers. So yeah, absolutely, they're going to benefit from you being at home. If you imagine sort of money in wallets and in pre-pandemic, all of that went into cities and we had these huge big peaks in cities and then they all went home in the evening whereas now we're a lot less peaky so that's a positive for high streets but that's taking nominally the potential out of cities the flip side of that is when we then look at people's behavior in cities and this is using the same banking data that i referred to before we're seeing that yes people are going into the office less often but when they go they're spending 15 percent more on every trip there so previously instead of eating a prep at your desk and dribbling crumbs all over your keyboard you're going out for lunch with your colleagues because your time in the office is collegiate. So all of a sudden you want to sit down in a restaurant in places like Caravan and the Shum and so on will suddenly start being a lot more engaging for office workers who previously wouldn't have engaged with that unless it was a client meal or something. Now colleagues will go together.
2: Yeah, we've seen that at King's Cross. So whilst football is still down materially relative to you know summer 2019, the footfall has started to come back but what is very clear and we we measure those statistics is that the spend per head is much higher Mm. so this pent-up demand again to to actually engage with retail and restaurant spaces is significant and as Alex just pointed out it's all about coming back together with friends with colleagues and be able to enjoy being back out and doing things that are normal so spend is definitely up footfall is definitely down and that's a, as a consequence of a, a change in working patterns, but also that, that lack of tourism, which is still something that is a, an era, a significant area that land, London mm. is still suffering from.
3: Yeah. What I do think is fascinating on that point about um, that dynamic between spend and footfall is it, intuitively it makes sense in sort of worker-dominated places, but it's also something we've seen in regional malls. So even those big sort of you know monolithic shopping palaces where people go to spend people are going there less frequently, but when they go, they are going spending to spend. More. And mm. so they're spending more. So we're still seeing footfall. In some of them, it's back to where we were pre-pandemic, but in a few of them, it's still um, suppressed. But the spend is generally caught up mm. and surpassed where we were pre-pandemic. Yeah. So it's almost, yeah, it's almost like people are going to the high street on a high-frequency, low-spend basis, but actually the shopping that they're doing, they're taking back into shopping destinations yeah. as it well. They're doing less
1: hanging out and more purpose shopping They're and there because they want to shop yeah, not just to hang absolutely. out because yeah so i think that's a really interesting kind of development uh, and yeah. to, but to that as well we've seen
3: catering spend has been slower to recover than retail spend so i think that is partly just people's general nervousness about the hanging out aspect i won't name them but i was in a big regional mall over the weekend and we got there at 10 and it was great and by sort of one thirty, two o'clock we're a bit like there's a lot of people here and we sort of Left, and so I do think there's a degree to which those big crowds are still a little bit anxiety-making for many people. And Catering yeah. is maybe suffering in those scenarios. I think we've seen in the inverse of that actually at Kings Cross. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: the the restaurants recovered much, much more quickly than the retail spaces. And I think that again comes back to the ability for us as a as a landlord and owner and curator of that space to work more collaboratively mm. with the operators themselves for example we were able to create 1500 new dining seats and chairs outside oh, so you during can the leverage pandemic. That we could, we, yeah. Far, yeah. Far, far we could leverage that and, and that enabled them to recover However, it's still exceptionally difficult Mm. because operational costs are are much higher still. There's all the issues with staff shortage as well and the ability to actually turn tables and get people in and out quickly. Mm. People still, I think, want to see an element of social distancing and are still nervous. And that will continue coming into the winter months of this year. Yeah.
0: And what about some of the retail offerings that aren't performing as well, such as department stores? Ibrahim, from a design perspective, I know you mentioned you're working on a particular department store. What what are some of the design features that we can implement that can encourage people to come back to buildings such as department stores?
1: Well, I think the department store and any multi-brand wholesaler, if you like, of brands is at threat existentially because many, many brands now are going uh, adopting direct-to-consumer strategies. Uh, I mean, Nike being a great example of that and many others, and many D2C brands are being formed. So they're going direct, and therefore, the days of a department store being a distributor of goods is over they've got to be a teller of stories they've got to be a hoster of brands they've got to be a stager stage of experiences and they've got to be able to convince brands that they will be able to tell their stories and serve their customers and live the brand not just flog stuff off shelves and those department stores that see themselves as of goods i think that days are numbered mm-hmm. um, and the work we're doing is exactly that we're turning a, department, a very venerable department store in, in, in Canada into a stage set yeah. for brands. And that is has massive repercussions on staffing or the type of people they're going to take on uh, to, 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 to host those brands and the relationships they have with those brands and very importantly, the revenue models from those. And that begins to get us into the realm of how do you measure the value of a brand being in a department store or having a store in a shopping center when it's not about transaction. If the purpose of that store is to recruit customers to drive Mm -hmm. them to social platforms or online, then we need to, landlords need to, capture the data that demonstrates the value of that physical space. And that is uh, I'll hand over to Alex that very <laughs> yeah, that's good my, to say, That's my uh, challenge <laughs> put it on the table that's my challenge
0: <laughs> yeah well it just might be interesting to talk about the role of technology in, in general within those brands because obviously it will be of use when it comes to measuring impact but obviously there's examples of technology being used to create virtual experiences or, or kind of combine, bridge the gap between the online and the physical retail offerings so I just wondered what your thoughts were on how technology can help.
1: Yeah, I think technology can hinder a lot. I think the technology for the sake of technology is, is worse. It's critical that technology works with natural human behaviour. Uh, Google Glass is a great example of when it doesn't, what happens. And I think technology or digital you know, has got to magnify the physical, as we say. You know, it's got to be able to, to blend with the physical experience, that augment it and work in one. It can't just be, there's a physical experience, let's put a screen here with some AR or whatever. I mean, it's not about technology. It's about experience. Technology is an enabler. What is the experience? Let's let's define the experience first. And if technology helps us with that, great. Then just start with technology. And I think the world would be a better place if techies don't drive everything. It's people who understand human behavior.
0: Yeah. So so going back to what you were saying before then, the retail offerings are going to become spaces to raise brand awareness, and then they maybe will go home and do the shopping online rather than doing it in the physical store.
3: There's more, I think, what you what you really need to get into is, well, what role does a store play for a brand? Mm. So why would a retailer take a, take space? And I think, you know, historically and through the sort of traditional lease model and so on, from a landlord's perspective, that store is valued at best. Um, and this is in some of the more progressive landlords, just on what goes through the till. But in terms of why retailers take that space, and, you know, you, I came... Down Oxford Circus, and you've got those brands which are on the circus itself. Microsoft, you know, think about why they've taken that store. You know, everyone knows why they've taken it, but it applies everywhere. So, you know, from a retailer's perspective, you get revenue through your till. So, anyone who transacts in store, great, that's the traditional channel. You get an online halo, and we have observed again and again in almost every sector, um, to varying degrees, but in every category, in every location, a brand's online sales will be higher in the area immediately around the store then they will be beyond that. So the store itself drives online sales up, and that's because there's a degree of trust that the customer has in that brand because they know that it's physically there. There's a degree of brand awareness that it's just in their subconscious when they immediately think of where they shop or where they should go, that brand comes to mind. And it comes on to the fact that you can also click and collect. That's an online transaction which is fulfilled in store. You can return a product in store in most cases. So that, again, is... An online transaction fulfilled by the store. So these are the other three ways that the stores roll. And then ultimately it's footfall, it's marketing, and we call it sort of influencing impressions. In the same way that a brand would take real estate on a web page to advertise to a, a, a customer who was browsing the internet. So is the store doing the same thing. It's real estate on a high street in the physical environment to advertise to a customer. So if you see that brand, you engage with it. And so you, you start thinking about well. Retailers get benefit, or any occupier gets benefit from that footfall, it gets it from the click and collect, it gets it from the online returns, it gets it from the till, and it gets it from that halo. And then you start thinking, well, we only value the store on one of those aspects, and we overvalue it on that one and undervalue it on all the others. And that's where potentially, well, not even potentially, that's where I think the lease and the whole way in
1: which we think about space needs to change, and is changing. Mm. Can I just add something to that, or, or, or frame it in a slightly different way, but saying that exactly the same thing, really? And that is we, we, what we've done is segmented th- the, the, the retail space, the physical space, into three typologies. One is your traditional, uh, and each one has a different kind of revenue model and a rent model. One, one is your traditional transaction fulfilment, as Alex explained, That's can be turnover. Yep. It can be rent on the basis of how much space there is. It can be a rent based on how many... Goods are collected from Click & Collect, so we can base it around that. The next is community, we call community typology. That is brands bringing communities together, their communities, putting on you know, a yoga class or a cooking class or something. How can we create a rent model from that? Is it footfall? Is it dwell time? Is it subscription model? And the final one is what we call recruitment, which is, again, Alex explained that. How do we measure the ability of a physical space to recruit customers to drive them online? So then we measure the media impressions. How many followers does it drive? How many tweets does it drive? And then there's three different types of rent models. So the idea that the industry is framing turnover rent as something something um, <laughs> kind of revolutionary, which has been going on in airports since they dot, yeah. you know, is really And outlet centres. It's the entire outlet model. Yeah. Outlet centres yeah. are based on a...
3: Percentage turnover right. and, deal. and yeah, and it's being held up as if it's the savior of physical retail. Mm. And it's forgetting the fact that it works in an airport because the primary reason for that space is to transact in, it works in an outlet center because the primary reason for that space is to transact mm. in. So that's a perfect example of where they've looked at what's this space being used for and then valued it according to its primary right, use, yeah. but in physical retail in the high street and in shopping centres and so on, that's not its primary use. It's got, as I've said, there's multiple facets to it. And, yeah, it's a really good point. Like, there's very, very few locations that are going to tick all five of those equally. You know, a retail park is going to be all about fulfilment, whereas a West End Oxford Street store is going to be all about that impression and that branding exercise Mm. and that um, engagement, that sort of recruitment
1: aspect. Mm. I mean, the challenge to us, for us um, as designers, is how does that impact the master plan? Where do you put transactional recruitment and community retail? How do you create the adjacencies? What does the public realm activation look like? How do you blur the, the lines between the tenanted and the public space? So it has a massive impact on the design of the space, on the master plan of the space, and on the service proposition and the rent model. So it changes the game. And i think going to say in the challenge for us is how you quantify all of that.
0: Yeah,
2: that is the challenge <laughs> which, which, which the real estate say. industry is yeah. still grappling with and you know, we've, we've had to manage quite carefully the relationships between the traditional relationship between landlord and tenant during the last two years particularly mm. and make sure that, that, that the marriage that we have there is going to continue in the long term and from a landlord's point of view it, it's quite tricky at the moment and we are looking at data to try and create new leasing models that work for both both parties to be honest and and how we value those and you're starting to see certain um, larger landlords be able to look at footfall customer retention dwell spend brand profile through data analysis and adapt their leasing models and the rent um, proposition uh, based on that but it's not straightforward Um, and from a very boring perspective, a lot of a lot of the real estate that retailers are occupying are held and owned by traditional institutional investors, which means they need to understand the value of their assets, and they need a certainty of income to then be able to pay pensions and other shareholders their their, their, their income. Yeah, of course. I
3: mean, through the pandemic, we've been talking, because as a business, we work with occupiers and owners of space, and we've been talking to both parties about resolving this challenge, because back to the beginning, it's been an issue for a number of years. It's been getting worse and worse. The Landlord Tenancy Act is now 67 years old, I think. It came in when uh, we started rationing after the Second World War, and it still underpins most of the leases which take place, which is ludicrous when you think about everything we've just said. So we've been working with both sides to work out well what what would a new one look like and you know in principle you can do it all so we have a performance lease model all those things i touched on working with a retailer's sales data and working with a landlord's estate data effectively the footfall and so on you can absolutely quantify and measure all of those variables over time and you can build a lease off the back of it and we've done that with three different landlord and retailer combinations so far taking into account online halo and footfall and so on So it's absolutely doable, but you need will, a lot of will on both parties. And at the moment, and this is perhaps the fundamental challenge of it all, is that in the market at any given point, the balance of power, if you like, or the weight of demand versus supply, is usually with one side or the other. It's very, very rare that it's perfectly balanced in equilibrium. And right now, in most spaces, it's with retailers. So from a retailer's perspective, there's not a lot of incentive to put on the table all of your online sales when you can mm. just say, no, it's till turnover only. And so, and which I get, you know, they have commercial responsibilities to their shareholders. But equally to your point, you've got the flip side, which is when a landlord does have that degree of retail tension and when they can influence and wield it why are they going to give up security of income?
0: Yeah,
3: Because they have responsibilities to their shareholders. And more often than not, their shareholders are the city and pensions and yeah. you know, these yeah. big behemoths who need security of income because that's why they bought into real estate in the yes. first place. It grows asset value and it pays rent. And if you're yeah. not doing one of those two things, you might as well invest in wine or paintings.
0: <laughs> but of, of course, the high street is, is not just about retail. It's also about what it stands for how it creates community how it brings people together how it can sort of represent an area and the people that live there Um, and of course you know as a platform in which to talk about the histories and the culture of a place which which obviously it's it's hard to to measure with monetary value so how do we deal with that? I,
3: I would almost I'd be slightly challenging I'd almost throw it to you guys in terms of think of the forces which shape our high street it's landlords and Um, Yes, there are some very big, like, urgent, cohesive, sort of forward-thinking landlords who are trying to create community and building that in at stage one. But most high streets are a scattered mishmash Mm -hmm. of families and institutions and absentee landlords who all have conflicting interests and are competing against each other for that high street. So there's landlords who shape that space. There's planning departments. There's occupiers, whoever's going to take that space of tenants. And probably at the very bottom of the list, and this is probably in order of degree of influence, at the very bottom of that list is the customer but that's mm-hmm. the one where we say, what's the high street for? That's the one we say, oh, this is who it's for, who it's for. they have the least amount of influence over what that high street looks like.
1: Uh, I'll just build on that. Uh, I think it's, we've got to think about citizens first, not customers, not consumers, and have a duty of care for citizens. And as the investment industry begin to prioritise ESG and we're seeing a growth in, in investments that deliver social, cultural and environmental value, I think once those KPIs shift and we begin to judge how we master plan a, a, a shopping center or a mixed-use development or an urban regeneration project a High Street, where we build in that whole thinking, a whole strategy, and demonstrate, have evidence of social and cultural value, which is a combination of, yes, wellness, green space, yes, communal space, but also brands that prioritize social and cultural value, mm. I think... That will be in parallel to the growth of, now, consumers turning their attention to brands that have a purpose and brands that, that deliver uh, social uh, And I think if the two things come together, then you've got the perfect storm. I, yes.
3: I think those three things as well. If the landlords, the planning and the retailers, the one thing that would make all of them a success is if they got it right for consumers. So even though consumers are right, seem to be right at the bottom of that list, if landlords deliver space that people want, then that drives footfall and that drives brands and that drives engagement. If the planners can create a space which has public realm in which people want to engage in, then that makes effectively for some people who love their community and want to engage in that community. And equally from an occupier's perspective, if you tick it off and get it right for what customers want, then obviously you will do better as well. So it's almost like customers are right at the bottom of that list, but in many senses should have or do have the most control, but are often the least listened to. I think that's probably one of the biggest existential challenges we have when we think about high streets particularly mm. disparate ones where it's a traditional sort of mixed use space.
0: Yeah and in terms of generating social value I suppose there is there's initiatives that don't necessarily lie within the brand or the shops themselves so I'm thinking of the public pianos in St Pancras station and how they're always there's always somebody there playing there or somebody listening. Presumably people that come to engage with initiatives such as that will then perhaps go into a shop nearby and those in turn generate footfall even though it's probably quite difficult to measure the monetary value of such initiatives
1: um it's it's possible to measure people's response to places that that they want to visit they feel comfortable in they there's a sense of wellness in those places there's not a situation where all the shops close and become very expensive two-bed flats that kill the high street (laughs) you know this idea this panacea that that you know turning everything to residential is going to is going to solve everything I wear my uh, high street task force hat now you know that that is absolutely not the solution we've got to create and and maintain uh, a a lively activated diverse Mm -hmm. um, um, high streets and, and and town centers and I and I like to talk about this reinvention or redefinition of mixed use into blended use and what does that mean for us, and when in the context of high streets and, and town centres, it means looking at every use typology and, and defining within each use typology what component of it, what blending agent activates public realm. Mm. And that is the new consumer offer. It's not just shops and restaurants. There are elements of workplace that activate public realm and align with retail and F&B. There's elements of healthcare that are much more consumer-facing, have moved from clinical to consumer facing there's there's residential that that are elements of residential that that brands are taking and occupying residential space how do they activate the public realm education there's element i mean central st martin's if you look at central st martin's in in king's cross as you're walking towards waitrose you you look right and you see a workshop of a designer how wonderful that is (laughs) activating public realm that's back of house to front of house and that i think is is how are we going to enliven yeah, and and think what Kings Cross are doing. Planning
2: is going to help that, albeit we haven't really seen the evidence yet of these multifaceted spaces that have come through mm. the new use class order, but being able to blend retail to leisure, to F&B, to educational use, to, to um, showcase, to theatrical opportunities, experience-led, that, that the really good brands will now be able to capitalise on that flexibility and create really sensational spaces. And to, to Ibrahim's point, around the, the, the reinvention of the department store, that's doing it on a larger scale. But some of the most successful retailers that we've seen have been the small independents mm-hmm. that have done all of those things and can do it in a thousand square mm-hmm. feet. So, so that is going to be a pivotal—it's a pivotal change, I think, in terms of flexibility of the high street.
0: So, what what scope is there for developers to support more independents um, with different retail
2: typologies? Well, real estate tradition has been very difficult to to enter, you know, that the the costs of physical stores have often been very expensive from the rent itself to business rates. And obviously, they've just, uh, you know, they've had a period of being subdued, but they're coming right back. Same with VAT. So physical stores are expensive service charges. But again, the majority of landlords um, will take a long term view. And undertake initiatives like white-boxing the units, and that throws, throws through into the ESG strategy. No one wants to see waste for waste's sake. Mm-hmm. So actually fitting out units that people can turnkey and go and trade straight away, um, supporting smaller independents that can, can you know, come for six months or for a year or two years and then look to grow their business online, looking at different leasing models for, for, for different types of retail, use is also really important. So a combination of capital support and then how we manage the income flow between the landlord and the occupier, a hybrid of those things. But you're going to see most landlords actually have to think outside the box on attracting operators into their physical spaces now.
3: I I would add to that as well, I think. um, We have to be quite cognizant of where in the country landlords are doing that as well because I think if you are in the southeast and in particular in central London Mm. and I think Argent and Kings Cross is a great example of this and I think Elephant and Castle are as well where you can effectively you know you talk, talk about public realm and bringing those sort of use cases in if you think in those big managed estates that ground floor the public realm is literally the whole of the ground floor both the physical public realm space, but also what the stores and the units and occupiers are themselves, you think about that as almost a permeable layer, then you can invest in that layer and you can support independence and you can give over prime real estate to independent operators who ordinarily wouldn't be able to afford it, let's say on a pure turnover or pure performance deal, because fundamentally what you're doing is you're creating value and you're creating that sense of identity, which then allows you to elevate floors two to 20. So all of a sudden you have office occupiers who want to take space there. Um, British Land done a great job of this year in Board Game where yeah. you want to go and take space there because you've got a really engaging downstairs. There's a nice mix of shops and people come and say, well, should I take some space here? And like, oh, well, there's an amazing, like you know, there's Yaucho if I want to have my big expense lunch, but equally there's some pop-up food carts. You know, and that's exactly what I would say. So you, you can do that when you have enough value sitting above you to create something and curate something on the ground floor that's a far far bigger challenge to deliver in Bolton. Yeah Yeah.
2: it it is and also just just for that vein you know we we do have the benefit of managing the public realm Mm. um, and it it is very open and accessible and, and public facing it's not meant to be too manicured but I think there is the opportunity for for local authorities now to work much closer in partnerships with with landlords and developers, to to support with controlling the public realm, um, because the costs on local authorities to, to maintain, to clean, to make it sure it's secure, it's it's it, you know what, whatever physical amenities are in their spaces are expensive for them to maintain. So in Westminster, for example, you know for for Shaftesbury Estate and for the Crown Estate, they don't own the public realm, but they support managing it. And they have management agreements mm. with with Westminster Council to to ensure that 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 um, spill out space from the retail stores and and the restaurants feels as one. It feels like there is a there's a breadcrumb um, from your from from the moment you you leave the the tube. And they are the most successful spaces. So even in more challenging destinations that don't necessarily have the footfall. Um, or the tourism that we see in London, there are ways that private landlords and owners can work much more closely with authorities.
3: We've done work with um, a lot of the bids, and Mm. um, they are particularly vocal and strong to the business improvement districts, where it's precisely that, where you have the local landlords coming together with a lot of the occupiers and often the big employers in a town to create a single voice that effectively tries to sell in that town and brings all parties together to try and create a more cohesive space because it is in those locations where it becomes a lot more challenging. And um, there's also, you touched on it before, but there's a lot of big shopping centres in some of those locations which are overspaced. There's too much retail there. And not only are they overspaced, but there's a lot of sunk value in them that frankly is unlikely to come back out Mm -hmm. again. And so there's some big calls to be made in those spaces in terms of how you keep them, because they're hugely important to the local community. And one of the things we've been discussing is almost, and this kind of touches the department staff point, imagine you have one part of the space which is let to, say, the council or to long-term occupiers, so uh, medical services, dentists, doctors, that sort of thing, people who are willing to sign up for the traditional sort of 15, 20-year lease or be out on a much lower rent, and they are there, and that gives you that security of income. You then have a much smaller amount of space. It's led to sort of the big multinationals, your next H&Ms, your B&Ms and so on, who will always be in those markets. And to be fair, always take good money in those markets. That's what customers, customers don't actively necessarily seek them out, but that's where they spend their money. So you have some space dedicated to them and then you have some space given over to, say, independents on pure turnover deals. So for them, you are then 100% based on their performance and then potentially you give some space back to the council. And then you ended up with a much more diverse, flexible centre where the whole thing isn't let on a single model, it's let on multiple models, but it's more likely to create something with longevity. And back to the very beginning, that's where landlords ultimately are going to make money by adding long-term value to space.
2: Also, I think for some of the more traditional high streets, the, the restrictions around Retail shopfronts as well has been quite difficult for operators mm. to actually trade. So, being more flexible on this in-out opportunity through glazing or signage, and just allowing them to express themselves more, is going to be really critical for the reinvention of the high street.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, they're, they're all really, really critical points, and, and I think I like to sort of like to term that or frame that in in the referring to it as the future of retail is no longer about real estate, it's about content. And Mm -hmm. I think, and real estate, all the bits of real estate is a byproduct of getting the content right. And let's think about it as content. And that content has got a shift from, from, you know, a landlord to becoming a host. And how do you host that content? Leasing to becoming more about curation, how do you curate that content? And shops shifting away from being stores with shelves for stuff for sale, Become stages with stories that are shareable. Mm-hmm. If we think about the whole, the whole area of retail in those terms, and therefore design it and master plan it in those terms, then I think we're onto something with diversified occupiers, diversified revenue, and recapturing of value. Um,
3: there, there is one elephant in the room on all of this, which is valuers and valuation. <laughs> yes, yeah? um, because it, until and, and I agree with every single point of that, but until space is getting valued for what it is doing today and based on what it can do, you're almost appreciating it for what it is and the revenue it's driving rather than basing, on, basing it on old ways of valuing that space, then people aren't going to take that step. So we work with a lot of landlords and I'm obviously not going to name any of them <laughs> um, who know what they want to do and they want to do all the right things, but they fundamentally can't because if they give over a space that was previously let at a benchmark rent to a 100% turnover deal, they're going to see the overall value of a centre get slashed and they just can't take the risk. And until that changes, then there's this idea that all landlords are evil and all landlords want to do something (laughs) bad. It's actually most landlords we work with, most of them, want to do the right thing, but they also have to run businesses and they are more often not in hock to what the valuation is, maintaining historic valuations or whatever. And ultimately, you could argue that's what did for into. Yeah,
2: and that's, you know, the red book there, formulated by the RICS is an important part of them that the institutional body that the RICS is looking forward to to changing, being able to adapt to mm. the changes in real estate to enable valuers because that is the issue mm. um that, that that people can only continue to invest in real estate if they know they've got security through the valuation of the assets that they've gone and bought yeah
1: absolutely I
3: do feel slightly bad I've called value with elephants <laughs> oh <yeah.
2: laughs> So going back to
0: ESG then, maybe sort of more focusing on the S of ESG, Anthea, what are some of the design trends for
2: retail that can create meaningful impact um, around ESG from from the get-go? We really need to focus more on being a facilitator. This is from a landlord point of view to enable the circular economy to actually happen. And it's also incumbent on the occupiers themselves coming together as communities to look at circular economy opportunities from their products, their supply chain, to the waste that they create. And it is very difficult. And there are, there are a lot more corporates now focused on the E, the S and the G, particularly with COP26 coming around the corner and Businesses being focused on their carbon neutrality and then long longer term net zero. So it's really around working together in partnership. I know we talk about that a lot, but it genuinely is going to be the only way that we can be successful in driving the environmental and the social agenda. But looking at opportunities for a circular economy is, is an important part, particularly in the context of retail and restaurants.
0: And what about the environmental impact? How do you think that we can get better at that?
1: The best thing we can do when it comes to, to ESG is repurpose buildings, not, not build new ones. <laughs> so if we can repurpose buildings and bring them back to life and connect them more to community and make them vibrant again, as well as high streets, then that delivers ESG in spade loads. You know, I think that that is, that is the key. Yes, we have our, all the... Uh, other aspects of environmental from sustainability to recycling to circular economy, and very importantly, looking at those brands and identifying those brands that really truly, truly do have ESG and purpose at their core and 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 encouraging them and and bringing them into the, into the mix I think that's mm. that's important, and I think consumers will do that anyway
2: mm. it, the, on the social side it's it's layering in culture, arts, mm. education. And that being fundamental pillars of, of creating great spaces and places. And you know, they are foundations of of society and really looking at communities, culture, mm. really understanding what, what the, the the customer wants to see is, is really important and going forward.
3: I think a lot of a lot of places already do quite a lot, but maybe don't do enough about telling the customers about it because I do think it's a bit of a virtuous mm. circle here where most uh, managed landlords and most managed places will have a number of initiatives which they're doing in terms of say recycling rainwater or the fit out that built out it was built to bream standards or you know they've invested in double glazing, or all these various yeah you know, active actions which are taking place which they're not advertising to customers and yes those oh, how we put it on our facebook group i don't know if that's a thing anymore i don't know what's related <laughs> but um the what they kind of need to be doing is actually putting a board up in the center. I mean, I know this sounds old school, but most of your customers spend most of the time in the center. They don't go and search you up on social afterwards. Mm. You know, People are there in a space, put a big board in front of them and say, because you came here today, you saved X kilos of carbon instead of getting it delivered to your home. Yeah. There was this much cardboard that would have been wasted putting it in your through your letterbox and in your hand. You know, there was this much rainwater we recycled. Those things there, then people will feel positive about the locations they go to, you know, advertise, you know, make it clear the local employment you're offering, make it clear steps you're taking in order to make sure that the employees within a location are reflective of the diversity and are inclusive of the area in which you're operating, you know, play that, all that to consumers because consumers will react positively to it and they'll engage more and this you end up then in a virtuous circle. People realise they are rewarded for these good behaviours and they'll change and right at the other absolute extreme of this it was a conversation we were involved in some time back with a whole group of people who were effectively investment and finance people so sort of dark arts that i don't begin to understand <laughs> but one of the things they were saying was that if you were seeking debt on a investment that you had a real estate investment and that was taking certain environmental standards you could get that debt at a lower interest rate Yes. So the markets are rewarding mm. ESG. Mm-hmm. And the minute I heard that, I was like, you know, maybe there was actually some hope because if the markets are rewarding <laughs> it and it's being built into debt management at that sort of multi-million pound level, then that's the sort of thing that triggers real meaningful change. But if we are making that change, tell people we're doing it. Yeah, you and have then to they'll reward it, it and it all cycles back. Yeah, through.
2: You do yeah. have to report on it. So it's important to understand the data and to understand the benchmark mm. And that's not been straightforward to be able to to measure, uh, but there, it, it is easier now. So really, looking at your social impact and your environment environmental impact and reporting it publicly yeah. brings that awareness. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Definitely, for, yeah. As long as it's genuine and transparent.
3: Mm. And actually, even your own employees will feel proud to be working there. Yeah, there's it's just it is it's loops through on benefit mm. benefit in terms of organisations getting it right.
0: Um, and finally, let's talk about empty shops and meanwhile use. So obviously, we've got a lot of spaces standing vacant now. What do you think the best way to utilise them in order to encourage footfall, but also to sort of to um, benefit the wider communities
1: Now I've touched on it with yeah. the, the, the idea of white boxing um, retail or however you want to term it but making it easy for, for new brands young, young brands small brands to occupy space quickly cheaply mm-hmm. and then move on and, and migrate them to larger spaces I think Landlords that do that, you know, it's, it's, it's really critical. But I think, that, you know, that, that there's, there's bigger things we can do as well. We're, we've been looking at uh, kind of new typologies of space, how we can reinvent the physical space, creating a new typology. We, we call it make, work, learn, sell. So it, it's really looking at new future manufacturing, uh, micro-manufacturing, and thinking about a micro-manufacturing, a place that, that makes stuff, that is linked to a co-working community, so a whole series of different makers that are linked to a co-working community. That is then linked and connected to in the same building a, a learning platform, a stage somewhere that people can launch products. Investors can come and 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 share ideas, which at the ground level is linked to a selling place. So you make it, you 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 share it, you kind of create a community, and you sell the same stuff on the ground level. So from basic kind of coffee roaster to a microbrewer to glass blowers, or whatever the business is whatever the micro manufacturer is creating those new typologies which I think is one part of reinventing the shop Mm. where it becomes far more integrated across the value chain if you like or manufacturing chain and becomes part of community and really activates public realm and Mm. we've been looking at that for quite a while now and, and there are great opportunities for that.
0: And Alex, do you think that's what the consumers want from yeah. Meanwhile Spaces?
3: I mean, I think if you walk into a space and there's something fun and engaging and a bit of theatre, that's what people want from space mm. you know, and authenticity. Theater. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, everything. You know, just touched on the other thing. I'd say is you know, reach out to education institutions, um, sixth form colleges. You know, they have um, you know St Martin's College. You'll have you'll have design and tech people there who are making cool stuff. I like, almost go to go to them and say, right, we have this unit and um, we want to give it over to your graduation class to showcase the best that they've done or we want to set a challenge to your business studies class on what they should do in this space and then advertise that you're doing it. Don't just like suddenly throw a load of teenagers into a white box and just like act like it's a normal (laughs) shop. Make a big show and tell you know song and dance about it like this is Center X's you know giving something back or this is our stage this is our platform. Mm -hmm. Again it's a bit of signage but it's the sort of thing you walk in and you go oh that's good and then people Mm -hmm. again feel warm and they engage. So I would absolutely do that. The other one I would sort of bear in mind, and I'm speaking slightly personally on this front, anything which is providing people with working near home. And I say this because we've got builders about to move into our house tomorrow. (laughs) Um, So I'm frantically looking for space I can go and work in when I am working at home, which is near home. And, you know, to the whole point about imagine going into a shopping environment on what was traditionally a big white wall. And actually there's a cool working space there and it's cheap and it's not a minimum commitment of three months mm-hmm. or whatever. It's turn up five pounds. Here's a desk and a monitor, yeah. like. And then people walk past, and again, you look past, you see an office, you see those people working. Like, oh, that looks interesting. And it, it's just, again, just make it
1: engaging, mm. but make it something happen. Yeah. yeah. One thing I would say about what I've just said is that it's not only about small brands. Big brands are now becoming far more, far more vertical, and they're manufacturing, yeah. retailing, you know, and they are disturbing or, or interrupting. The whole food chain, you know, this idea of manufacturer, distributor, um, retailer, it's all sort of mixing up and, and uh, retailers are becoming manufacturers. Manufacturers are becoming retailers. So this verticality mm. uh, and circularity yeah, so um, is really interesting. Yeah. Mm. To that point, um,
3: I live in Peckham and I don't know if you guys have been to the Peckham levels. Yeah. But um, mm, there's this really good shop in there, which basically you can do in with your brand new box fresh Nikes. And they will then personalize them and decorate them. But the whole thing is a white, is a clear glass frontage, so you can see them there, like yeah, you know, yeah, playing, doing the actual work there, and then on these yeah. shoes and yeah. stuff like that. That is just really engaging. My yeah. yeah. kids just love to stand yeah. and stare at the window through yeah. them doing
1: it. And there's 3D from 3D printing point of view. There's 3D weaving machines now, so more and more fashion brands you'll see um, 3D weaving machines coming into retail. Sorry, I was to
2: say the boring element of it is actually making it affordable. Mm for these operators doesn't matter how experimental they are if they can't afford to pay a rent and the business rates and costs that go with it they're not going to last very long so there's a whole rebalancing that has to be done around cost and affordability which is incumbent on the public sector on private landlords on occupiers being realistic on on looking at how we assess value um, to make sure that the these opportunities are there for the long-term and not mm-hmm. just short-term. And, uh, um,
3: we, yeah, we, one of the things we talked about was this idea that you could have, and you would do this in places which are overspaced, spaced um, but you'd have incubator space where you'd put people in there on literally, they'd have six months, say, yeah. and they'd have to have full disclosure of whatever they were making out of that space, and then if it was sustainable, you move them in yes. almost upper tier. Yeah, a we've long, done that, long, that at, at
2: Cold Drops Yard. We have yeah, Lower yeah. Stable Street, which is purely for incubator, small independent brands. And we now have operators going to be announcing it next week that are actually moving into permanent physical stores. Yeah. So there is that model that does work. But you do have to look at what the creation is in those spaces, but also how you manage cost. We, there's yeah. no point skirting over that is is an issue, business rates are an issue, ET is mm-hmm. an issue, service charges, rents. So we need to make sure that we look at a sustainable model. Um, and that's incumbent uh, on all of us to work together on that.
0: I think there's some excellent solutions there, and hopefully they'll all be implemented across the country and high streets across the world. So, yeah, I think that wraps everything up. Thank you for all participating today. It's been a pleasure chatting to you, um, and hopefully see you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you. I'm Anna Beketov, and you've been listening to PropCast, the property world's leading podcast. You can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and please do share with anyone that you think might be interested.